So today we have Jamie Grant, CIO for the state of Florida, and Jeremy Rogers, CISO for the state of Florida. Jamie and Jeremy, welcome to the Public Sector Show by Tech Tables. Thanks for having us, bud. Thanks. I love this. This is a long time coming. I'm super excited. And today's podcast episode is sponsored by Sentinel One. Sentinel One redefines cybersecurity by pushing the boundaries of autonomous technology with the Singularity XDR platform. Sentinel One is the leader in endpoint protection and beyond. Simply put, they stop the bad guys. And big shout out to Sentinel One for being the diamond sponsor today. Really appreciate the support of a small entrepreneur. Jamie, let's kick off. Now, a quick word from one of our brand partners. Nagaro is a leading provider of digital government services, partnering with state, local, and federal clients on some of their most strategic technology projects. Nagaro offers expertise in digital services, legacy modernization, case management, data and AI, service desks, cybersecurity, and more. Check out Nagaro.com. That's N-A-G-A-R-R-O.com. I love this quote that you had at Nasio, where you said, we're a startup within government we didn't inherit a program that's won a few championships. We inherited a program that's never won a football game. I can't leave till that changes. I love this. All the sports analogies, by the way, if you ever just Google Jamie Grant and you're just getting into just football championships. And I don't want the folks in the audience to miss this, uh, to miss this quote or gloss over it. Like football programs or basketball programs or government, when folks don't know what it's like to win championships or football games, it's hard to know what winning looks like or what standards to set. One of my earliest podcasts actually was with this guy, Gary Brantley, um, who we tried to get here. He's a friend. He was my first public sector podcast. He was the CIO for the city of Atlanta. He's now the CIO for the NFL. And we were trying to get him here and the schedules didn't work out. But we talked about this too. The city of Atlanta had a massive cyber attack a few years ago. And he came in and had to not just get the cybersecurity piece, right? But he had to get the culture right, the team right. And you don't do that if you, it's hard to do that if you don't know what winning looks like or what standards to set. So before, and we're going to cover the hurricane, Hurricane Ian, and the digital response from that, which is actually fantastic. And we're also going to cover the $30 million cybersecurity grant program from the state of Florida. But I think it's important to dive into government as a startup mindset. So Jamie, talk about setting the standard, raising the standard, and being the standard across digital services in the state of Florida. Yeah, so I think, I mean, I think you kind of touched on it right. Like if you don't have the people and the culture right, nothing else matters. I've been fortunate to be in some locker rooms with some really talented players. And, you know, we've got a little sports theme going today, I guess. March Madness going on. But, I, but the example I would give you is, is the 03 Auburn Tigers football. A lot of people talk about the 04 team with four first-round draft picks, a couple other 10-year NFL guys. The 03 team was much more talented. It was tragically poorly coached at a coordinator level, and you watched a team that, that should have been winning championships struggle through just conference play. And the only thing that really changed from 03 to 04 was leadership and buy-in. And I'll give that as an example just because we're kind of here in the way you turned, you set the stage. But like step one in any organization is getting folks inside the locker room that have kind of historically lost. Florida has four times before the digital service created an office to do state technology only for the legislature or the governor to first get and then ultimately agree so frustrated to abolish it, right? So the old Reagan quote about nothing is permanent as a temporary government program, Florida has defied that a few times with state technology. And so we kind of cherish that a little bit as a team to know that, you know, nobody's ever been able to do it. But step one, before you can go out there and start accepting trophies is just get in your own locker room and get folks to believe that they can win a single game. And when they start to see a little bit of success, they start to buy into a playbook, they start to buy into a culture, you're obviously going to have adversity, you're going to have losses. 
right? So you don't go from a perennial loser to winning championships in an instance, right? You go from winning zero games to winning two or three games. That's still losing a lot of football games. Mm. But letting folks understand that there is a plan and that you're going to ride with them through all of it. And so I think if you're willing to do that and you get the people right, the technology is actually very easy. Our challenges on the cybersecurity front or you know modernization front are not problems of can technology solve it. It's can we get people to buy in? Can we get the moat dragons out of the way? And can we in- encourage and incentivize the good behavior and discourage the bad behavior? Moat dragons is a term I've used for maybe a decade now, but like if there's a castle full of success, there are certain people that just circle in the moat trying to make sure nobody gets to success. And they exist in every industry, they exist in every ecosystem. And so finding them and figuring out how to navigate past them to, to say, okay, let's get onto the mission of what the mission is. But I think whether it's coaching football, whether it's coaching basketball, or whether it's building enterprise cybersecurity, the recipe is the exact same. It starts with talent and buy-in. But one of the things that we say, and, and you know, it's like you can take folks out of the athletic world or the coaching world, but you can't take that out of them. Reliability is the most important ability. You know, we've had some really talented people that, that might have had abilities off the charts in certain capacities, but they just couldn't be reliable. And at the end of the day, you find people that are bought in and reliable, and you can build with that anything you're trying to build. Yeah, no, I love that. And as a quick side note for I think we probably more folks listen to the podcast and they watch it. But so if you're listening to this, the sports team, if you're wondering, you might want to hop over to the video because they're wearing jerseys, right? So they're wearing their, the college jerseys that they we got. We originally actually were going to hang the jerseys, but last night at dinner, Jamie really wanted to wear the Auburn jersey. That's not quite how that went, but I'll, <laughs> but I'll let you roll with that. Yeah, yeah. In my podcast head, that's how... <laughs> This is my secret play to get them to wear the jerseys. Yeah, the Moat Dragon. Okay, so I love this. So I was listening to several while prepping for this, and it was the first time I heard it when I was listening to, because you've been doing the road show with the Lieutenant Governor and several folks, and I, the first time I heard a Moat Dragon, I was like, what is a Moat Dragon? And then I, so I started using this, and so anytime recently an organization would say something to me where basically I'm like, they're killing themselves, I'm like, oh, like off the phone, I'll be like, what a Mo Dragon. Now, some of you are like, oh, did that guy call me a Mo Dragon? Probably I did. Yeah. So, if you're looking in the mirror wondering if you're the Moat Dragon, you need to look in the mirror harder because you might be the Moat Dragon. Yeah. Yeah. And it, I think that's an important self-assessment. We have the luxury, it's just me and my wife, so we can move really fast, which is for us a great blessing because there are other teams where it just takes an entire board to sit down and figure out, hey, who are you going to podcast? And I'm like, hey, Laura, you want to come on? She's like, yeah. And then <laughs> that's how it happens. So yeah, so love the sports theme, love the Moat Dragon, love the rely. Last thing on the reliability I think is really great. You know, you learn this with coaching, but you really play, at least at basketball, so five. So for those of you not familiar with basketball, so five people start and play on the court at the same time. So those of you not sports fans. And reliability is huge because you actually, when the game is close, coaches only play those who they actually trust. And the kids really struggle, especially, so I was the head JV coach, and you get typically a lot of the, all the best incoming freshmen come to JV, and then those leave and go to varsity. And something that you kind of learn as a coach is like, who is the most consistent? And if someone shows up and puts up, we've had kids, coach, I put up 25 points this night. And I'm like, yeah, but the rest of the season, you have seven turnovers each game. You got to sit. And they're like, no, coach, why? But it's a learning lesson of like, hey, like we need to develop you. We need to get you better. We need you to have you, you need to become more consistent. Um, And those are the players you want on your team. And so Jeremy, I want to transition to you. There was a great book. I actually 
found this book off of your LinkedIn, bought it. And Jeremy's like, I don't even know if I read the questions. What is he talking about right now? So there's a leadership book from your friend and mentor and Navy shipmate, Sean Heritage, titled Connecting the Dots, Deliberate Observations and Leadership Musings About Everyday Life. In the book, I did read the book too. So in the book, it says dots signify two things. First, they represent milestones, large and small, happy and sad, we enjoy throughout the journey of life. They additionally symbolize disparate pieces of data that by themselves mean far less than they do in the aggregate. This forum is all about celebrating the lessons of life, enjoying the journey, and making sense of things along the way. Our quality of life and value we deliver have everything to do with our ability to deliberately connect the dots. I love the analogy of connecting the dots a lot. One of my favorite sections, I already use his word musings, was it's the network stupid. So if you remember that chapter, which is pretty funny. And the reason why I thought that was really funny for me is people ask me all the time, hey, why has Tech Tables grown the way it has? And I was like, I didn't say it's the network stupid, but I'm like, it's the people, like it's the relationships, like it's nothing to do with me. And guess what? As a leader, it's nothing to do with you. <laughs> it's your team that will drive the mission forward. And that's the most critical piece. But I was super curious for you, what, like, what was your favorite chapter or what spoke to you about connecting the dots? And like, how are you taking that with your current role right now? Yeah. So, so Sean's a good shipmate and a good mentor of mine from the Navy side of the house when I came in and really just taught me a lot. And now he's doing some great work over at MITRE. I think one of the big takeaways on that, and uh, Jamie touched on this as well, is the, and some of our previous conversations, and even this morning is it's, you know, if you don't get the people right, if you don't get the community right, if you don't get the players right and the mindset right, the technology actually doesn't matter to some extent. So when Jamie brought me on to run cybersecurity, a big part of making sure we're going in the right direction is building those relationships. So if you look at the state of Florida, you know, we've got we're a federated system of 30-something agencies, each have their own CIO and their name security leader. Sometimes that security leader may be technical, sometimes they may not be. Getting the getting us rowing in the same direction, getting the network working together, getting us sharing information, sharing intelligence versus versus having 37 separate silos. So breaking down those barriers and just getting us in the same mindset, I think, is, is a big lesson from that. And it, it's been exciting, right? It's not perfect. We're still building it. But just getting face-to-face, -face, you know, where if you don't know somebody's name and you don't have that relationship when times are easy, it's going to be really tough when you're maybe dealing with a security incident together or, or when you have a strong disagreement on where technology should go. So building out that people network so you can work together and information can flow freely is really the first part of that. And I feel like, you know, where we were a year ago in building that with the state is probably about where, I think we're actually in better shape with the locals now. So as we're kind of partnering across the cities and the counties and stuff, we're looking to grow that work, that network now. Yeah, and we're, we've got, uh, later this morning, we're going to have Ramundo, for those who are watching as an audience, and Tamika come on from the city. And actually, I'm going to read, I don't even know if I told you, but it's, I hope it's okay. There was an email you sent me about the hurricane relief and your insights and response that I'm going to read and that I thought was super powerful from the city perspective with the state coming in and a lot of the digital services. And so I texted that to you, but I don't know if you saw that. I didn't. Yeah, it's okay. I'll read it. I'll read it. That's what, <laughs> yeah. I'm not big on prepper scripts. So I don't yeah. know if you all figured yeah. that out. Yet. I got you, Ramundo. Don't worry. Okay. So Jamie, our original live podcast tour stop was supposed to be in Tallahassee, Yeah. which from what I hear, I might have to 
come up to Tallahassee. Laura's like, yeah, can you come up to Tallahassee, please? So, however, due due to Hurricane Ian in late September last year, we postponed the event so the state of Florida could serve its residents with its all hands on deck at the Emergency Operations Center. And Governor DeSantis set the tone for a successful emergency response. It was really a great case study on cutting government red tape to help Floridians when they needed it most. And uh, Jamie, you're quoted as saying that the state's response to Hurricane Ian was the first response that we've ever had that's been a truly that's had a truly digital component. Can you talk about some of those digital success stories from Starlink to missing persons to helping first responders avoid life-threatening situations through data sharing and more? Yeah, so I, I think one of the things that my, my granddad used to say, I never know him, but he said my dad, and it's the six Ps. We'll say five Ps for a public audience, but planning prevents poor performance, right? And so one of the things we've stressed to the agency community is have your binder ready to go, right? Like have what you need so that when a state of emergency shows up and all of the handcuffs of government go away and the speed limits of bureaucracy are removed, you can actually go. And so interestingly enough, we had asked for a CRM through the normal budgetary process of going to a staff analyst and saying, here's a budget request for a CRM. And they're like, why do you need a CRM? You have Outlook. And supposedly... That's a great CRM, by the way. Yeah, right? Like, <laughs> I, sh- I showed up, and that was one of the major horror stories for me in a hundred-and-something billion-dollar enterprise to find out that, like, the CRM was an email with either a deck, a spreadsheet or workbook, or a Word doc just circulated. And, like, that was how we did some level of business. And it was like, man, I, this is a bigger lift than I thought it was. And I thought it was a pretty big lift when I said yes. And so we had asked for a CRM, and the legislative analysts, the Moat Dragons, said, no, you don't need one. You have Outlook. We're like, all right, we'll make it work. And then Ian showed up and we had our binder. And so for the first time in state history, we were able to establish a CRM to truly serve the enterprise. So we set the record as we've been told. So somebody's going to have to prove us wrong. It's the only thing I ask for ServiceNow to, to confirm for is coming out of it. But we've been told we were the fastest ServiceNow instance stand up in the history of the company, public or private which we took a lot of pride in. It also takes a team, like, you know, whether it was Jeremy, Chandra, Adam Taylor, a number of folks in a war room going 20 hours a day for a while there. It's the only way you can get it done. But we stood up ServiceNow that first night. Big shout out to our partners at DEO, the Department of Economic Opportunity, because when we didn't have a CRM and had to engage, they were actually going to give us their instance. And we were trying to figure out like how we could, you know, make that work for 24 hours and then go. But we stood up the ServiceNow instance, we immediately stood up missing.fl.gov where people could report themselves as needing help or family members could report people missing. We ingested what we didn't know existed of, I think, like 48,000-something households deduplicated down to 20,660 households that had been offered a portal to say shelter in place. And when you think about digital service or government, like, you know, customers have a certain expectation when you give them the ability to fill out something. And if you're a Floridian in the impacted theater and you get a shelter in place survey, I think the most likely implication is tell us where you are so we can come get you. There were no plans to come get us. If you were those people, we had been very clearly saying the administration, get out of harm's way, right? And so we had to dedupe all those records where we actually got engaged. And this is just kind of, I think, a, a little bit of, a, of an interesting behind the scenes look, but also like understanding how to take, seize opportunity. The urban search and rescue, like the most critical cases, handled their ticketing system with a single email address right, just as a ticketing system. 
Well, the storm took out most of the 911 infrastructure, and the Coast Guard could only route cases to one email address. So, like, if I'm not a big movie guy, we joke with Secretary Linda at DMS, he's got a movie. He, I swear to God, he's seen every movie because I'm, he, like, says something that's like this in that movie. I'm like, you're going to have to break that one down for me. Like that. <laughs> but it's like Bruce Almighty when, he, like, the emails are coming in. You know, that's like, hey, we need help. We need help. And so they called us, and that's where... You know, step one, stop the triage of the email. Step two, stand up the CRM. Step three, anybody want to deploy network? Because we had been working with elections to figure out like doomsday election scenarios, we were pretty far down the path with SpaceX on a Starlink deployment to each county so that if their local networks where they did tabulation and or reporting went down, we could give them their own satellite network. We were far enough down the path on that that we could de deploy. So that's way too many words to give you the conclusion of what we did. But the high level is we ingested 20,660 households of what I would say less than clean data. We used the Snowflake instance that we'd been using for data catalog stuff and kind of said, hey, put pause on that. Come over here and let's clean this up. Let's figure out how to get that back into the ServiceNow instance to start resolving claims every way we or cases every way we could. So if somebody submitted on missing.fl.com, .fl.gov, sorry, I'm already private sector mentality sometimes, <laughs> .gov, which, so, so missing.fl.gov, they should also be able to come to safe.fl.gov, right? Deployed AI contact center capabilities that we had used during the pandemic to go land and sell, press one, reply, are you good, do you need help, right? Start resolving those most critical cases, start deploying Starlink. So I think 48 hours after impact, we had our first 30 terminals, 56 hours after impact, we had them deployed in Southwest Florida. The next day, I think we had a plane coming from California. And uniquely, this wasn't a plane full of people fleeing for economic opportunities and freedoms. It was people packing Starlinks on a plane to come support Floridians. So the first about 300 terminals showed up. We now have the largest Starlink fleet outside of Ukraine. It was the first ever Starlink deployment in history that was that was not uh, that was for a natural disaster. And then ultimately, kind of culminating when you think about the full ecosystem of, we stress kind of the CRM being a utility that people can build on. But the full life cycle, within 10 days, we had ingested about 100 and something thousand waypoints that people had tagged, right? So search and rescue goes and touches a car or they touch a, a house and they tag that waypoint. Because government, they tag a waypoint in a system that gives you a latitude and a longitude. That's a little different than an address. And we weren't going to ask people on missing.fl.gov to give us their latitude and longitude. And so our data team and a group converted those, and we were able to map at a household level, I think within 10 days of impact, where there was a missing record and somebody hadn't been touched, right? So to give intel to the front lines. And then the last thing I'd say on that front was like the ability, actually I'll say two things, because one's maybe a good place to land, the ability to give the Department of Transportation and um, Urban Search and Rescue uh, network capabilities in the field beyond sat phones. And you start thinking about how you open bridges and you start thinking about how you do things forward facing when you can actually access the internet or access the applications you operate in rather than just a sat phone from the front lines. And so there was some really cool stuff that came out of that. And I'll close by saying, you know, one of the challenges if you're in the, the CXO seat, whether it's, you know, a CIO, a CISO, a CTO, a CDO or any other alphabet soup is like you have to play the conflict of accessibility and security. 
And, you know, there's not a scenario where you can walk in and brief the governor and go, Governor, I'd love to give you satellite Wi-Fi. It's just not secure <laughs> uh, following a hurricane. And so we deployed Starlink and then our team and Jeremy very quickly started figuring out, okay, like you've just opened up access to the internet everywhere for people to show up. And so within 10 days, we were actually routing that traffic through a zero trust framework. And so we were actually able to secure it right within 10 days and then our network team given some permissions to play around has a pelican box with an antenna a cradle point and a sim that we can deploy now because as they've quickly kind of learned the new baseline is the expectation so well done but what are you going to do next yeah and so we like to make some firsts at the florida digital service the hurricane was an opportunity for us to do i think five years of innovation and transformation in about 45 days but i'll go back to where we started I got the call about 9.30 that night that the infrastructure broke, and there was about three or four phone calls I made to Jeremy and Adam and Chandra. I said, look, guys, I'm getting in the war room. Anybody want to go? And we went 20 hours a day for, I don't know, a month or whatever it was. You don't have a lot of people inside government that are used to having to do the things to generate the revenue to keep the company alive. These folks didn't necessarily – that wasn't – the mission was the motivation. But if you don't have those people at the time of crisis, it doesn't matter what's in your binder. So I could design the response all day long in my sleep pretty easily. Um, you can't design for having the right talent bought in, willing to play together in that moment. So yeah, it's cool. We bought a bunch of stuff and did some really cool stuff. I think more fun was to get to see people experience things they've never experienced before under timelines and pressures that they've never experienced before, only because they believe in the mission and what we're here to do. So it was a pretty cool experience for our team. No, thank you. That was fantastic. Jeremy. I want to continue on the kind of this, the bad actors. So, hey, we deploy Starlink, but now, you know, there's potentially this other cyber front that we have to take care of. Could you maybe just talk about that part of the experience? Yeah, absolutely. So Jamie's probably remember, I think you said you got the call at 930. I got a text probably 20 minutes later and, and it wasn't, hey, I need you in. It's, hey, if you want to come in, I think we've got some exciting stuff coming up and when you think of government work, you don't think of working 20 hour days and you don't think about your team stepping up to work there with you. And I would say it was a grueling month and some follow-up stuff, but it was also probably some of the work that I'm most proud of that we got to do together and my team's most proud of. And when you talk about the, the Starlink deployment, and it's really our security team that, that worked to overlay the products great. You're giving internet access in a spot where towers are down and cables are down. But for the first time, you have these search and rescue teams, the fire teams and the firefighter teams and the police that kind of come together and create these search and rescue teams from all across the country that come together to help all across the state and all across the country. And they're like, wow, this, they're able to have C2, command and control to go and, hey, where are these missing points? Where do we need to be in minutes, you know, hours instead of days and weeks? where lives matter. So to be able to provide that and get those folks up and running and the, those operators, and not just them, but also the DEO economic recovery and the DOT stuff, to have people be able to get their lives and businesses back up in order in, in again, hours. And that's the expectation that Governor Sanders put on us. So, it, you know, saying no and not being able to deliver was not an option to be in a, enabled with that. And much like when Jamie asked me, like, hey, can, do you want to come in this? Absolutely. And it wasn't always fun, but it was exciting. And I remember it, it was Jason Burtock, Josh on my team. You know, this was probably 10 hours later when I was talking to him because we knew we were standing up the 
kind of the hired contractor team, but that takes a little bit longer than the folks that you have on your immediate team going back to the people side of it. I remember Jamie was talking to me. I'm like, you want me to gather a team again? He's like, yeah, I think that's the only way we get this thing done. And when I was talking to Jason and his team, within a minute or two, he's like, you're asking me to go down to the emergency site, aren't you? And he had a glimmer in his eye and a little smile. So within less than a day, we have state employees just heading down there to set this up and do some cool stuff. But to bring it back to the, you know, the SpaceX Starlink product and the, the day, it's to, to get internet out there. But how does the state put our security apparatus on top of that? How do we monitor where it's going, especially when it comes to state IT government? So we've got this really cool, innovative solution. And when you think government or state government, innovation probably isn't the first thing that a lot of people think about where when you have state innovation. But when you look at what the Florida Digital Service is doing and our security team, they're now talking to us and saying, wow, this is awesome. We haven't seen someone kind of bring this box together with the security, you know, the hardware and the software and the applications and the cloud security and kind of the great infrastructure environment in a way that we can monitor it, know what's going on, block what we need to. You know, a governor is looking to block some foreign activity and stuff. So how do some, you- some. Yeah. Lots, lots. <laughs> so how do you do that? How do you make sure you're blocking the foreign actors and, and it needs to be tellerable? So that's the solution that our governor and RCIO set. And we're doing some pretty cool stuff, I think, at the state. Yeah. If you uh, are, listen to any of the interviews, a, a common theme that I've heard is like Governor DeSantis is like, hey, I expect excellence, if you, which if you go to the techtables.com website, you will know that's actually one of the things we value, right? So Tech Tables is all about creativity, excellence, and darn good conversations. And there's a reason why we actually value that. It's kind of a rare trait. Like people don't demand excellence. Now, excellence isn't perfection. Don't get those two confused, but nothing's perfect. But you want to strive for excellence. And I think I really like that. And then being accountable. Hey, are you going to get these results? And I was going all the way back to when I think it was when the governor was. It was like the, uh, there was some article where it was like you were just coming on as state CIO. And, and then maybe if you just 30,000 foot overview, just kind of that conversation of like, Hey, I'm, he's charging you with becoming state CIO and like, you're getting ready to take that task on. Like, could you just maybe like talk about like kind of the mindset of like, Hey, this failed four times before, and now I need you to go like execute. So, so the kind of the 30,000, the, the cliff notes, I was pissed as a legislator, right? Yeah. Cause it's an area I cared about, spent my I mean, I practiced law for a year and a half before I saw the suicide rates and was like, I'm out of here. And so spent my life and my livelihood in the tech space. And so I would get really frustrated. It kind of culminated, I think my boiling point, there's something called a claim bill and it's a way for the legislature to sue itself, right? So sovereign immunity exists. If you're gonna get hit by a truck, you wanna get hit by a FedEx truck, not a DOT truck. FedEx doesn't have sovereign immunity, right? So. Some cases are so bad that, that government says, hey, we'll sue ourselves, we'll waive sovereign immunity to pay more money than the $300,000 cap or whatever it may be. And in a couple different situations, a foster child and a sexual predator had been put in the same household. And it happened because two different agencies controlled two different lists. One would control the list of foster parent applications or placements. The other would keep sex offenders. And in at least one situation that came before my committee, an API call that we could have written in a week would have said, one, two, three, Main Street, red flag, no chance. And a foster parent applicant had a clean record, but she had a live-in boyfriend that was a sex predator. 
And because we couldn't do a rudimentary API call as a state, the worst of the worst happened. And so I kind of hit my boiling point then. And so I started writing policies kind of like a, a chairman of a board pissed off, ready to kick a CEO out of the chair. And it was like, the state CIO will do this and this. And then the administration came to me and we were like, we want you to take that job. I was like, I want to rewrite that job. <laughs> and so candidly, Joe, like they first asked, and my first answer was hell no. And they said, why? And I said, because the job sucks and the pay sucks. Like you can fix one of the two and I don't really care about the pay, but fix it. And then we can have a conversation. And there's still a long way to go to structure it for success for generations to come to deliver on what it should deliver on. But ultimately, I looked at it, and there was a little bit of two, two, two things at play. One, anybody who knows me well knows that if you dare me, you're going to get me to yes. And so I, I absolutely love being told it's not possible, it's never been done, and it can't be done. You know, I think some folks during the hurricane, if, if they were honest and I wasn't in the room, saw like sideline version of me a couple of times. And there were some people scared to walk in that war room because we were just focused on like, we got to get to tomorrow. And if you're bringing me something that doesn't get us to the next four hours, then get out. And you can come in here when, and so I think they saw a little side of me that probably my mom, Beverly, saint that she is, probably wouldn't be proud of at times. But I love being told it can't be done. You can call me a failure, but you'll never call me a quitter. And so I think that was part of it. And then two was the excitement. And Jeremy and I have talked about it in recruiting. Like it's a blank canvas. There's no other place in the world that I can think of that's a $115 billion enterprise that's never built out enterprise data, enterprise governance, enterprise security. So it's kind of like being J.P. Morgan Chase or Target when you look at the Fortune 100. If we were there, and, and my life in some ways would be a lot easier if I was Jamie Dimon, but in some ways harder. But like literally imagine being Jamie Dimon and Chase never having done security across the ecosystem. You only get to do that once in your lifetime. And so really relishing that and then ultimately knowing kind of a rally to our teams like, look, if we fail, we're just number five. Like nobody else has been <laughs> able to do it. So, so cherish the fact that everybody before you has failed. And that's not a knock. It's the encouragement of guys like, you know, one of the things we say everywhere I've been, it wouldn't surprise you. There's a Slack channel. that's stuff Jamie says that they just overhear. I'm like, we're going to. I got to join that Slack but, channel. But, but, it, but what I would say to that, Joe, is the team hears all the time that, that you can make the same mistake every single day and we will eventually promote you to customer or to constituent. Like if you just keep screwing up the same thing over and over, we're going to find you a better fit. You don't screw up anything. We're going to find you a better fit a lot faster. Right. So. Everybody knows we have immunity on one mistake. Like we have certain non-negotiable rules, like zero tolerance things. So you bring a cancer in the locker room, you'll be gone. That's a zero tolerance policy. You're a liar or a fraud, you'll be gone. That's a zero tolerance policy. You bust an assignment, that's all right. You got immunity. But I don't want to watch the same assignment on film over and over again. But if you're not going to make a bust, right, like the simplest way to do that is not get on the field. And I need you to get on the field. I need you to trust yourself. I need you to play fast. I need you to believe in the playbook that we've laid out and mistakes will happen. But if you'll do that, you can start to transform it. And so ultimately, we've tried to instill that culture of the most government job ever. And I'll tell you, Joe, it's funny, man. There's times where people are like, wait. So I said to somebody one time, some equivalent of like, you are doing an amazing job. This is the way I remember it. Like it was, you're doing an amazing job. We, You've earned the right to solve bigger problems, the opportunity to solve bigger problems. You're not entitled to that. And so we're going to move you here. And this person looked at me like confused puppy dog. And they were like, that's what government says right before they promote you to fire you. Mm. <laughs> 
I'm like, what? Like, I just said, you're awesome. You're doing great work. Like, in what universe is that? Like, how we move you to fire you? So, like, understanding the language that's a foreign language to private sector mentalities has been interesting. But I think we've built a team of people buying into the tourist service to go, hey, let's break stuff and go fast and know that they have somebody that ultimately, and I think if you really sum up leadership, Joe, and you and I could jam out all day long about failures, things we didn't see coming and that kind of thing. But we win, I lose. And if you have that mentality as a coach, I think you get people to start understanding. We don't want to hear I in our locker room. We can accept a trophy. I get fired. That's acceptable. You invert that and you get a pretty toxic culture that's set to lose a lot of games. And I think we, we fall short of that all the time as a team. But it's something that I, from my chair, really try and instill that like the outside world can chatter all they want. They can shoot at us all they want. I kind of relish it. We will succeed together if we stick together. If it doesn't work, I'll be gone. And then somebody else can take the chair. Yeah, I know that is well said. And I love what you said about the culture and in the locker room. And, you know, believe it or not, we, we've had high schoolers where, you know, fights break out. Some of you are like, don't know any high schoolers anymore, but it happens like on the court. And there's some stuff that's non-negotiable and, and it's critical to get the culture right. And the kids who who care more about their playing time than they do kind of about the team result really struggle because they have the kind of eye mentality. The best locker rooms are the locker rooms I don't have to manage. Yeah. The best players are the players I don't have to manage, right? Like when an issue erupts, when there's the players only meeting to solve the problem before we as a staff have to jump in, you know, you've got it right. Yeah. Right. When you've got assistants or coordinators that are constantly problems and you constantly have to intervene, that's the kind of stuff that, that makes the hairline march back even faster. Cause it's like, guys, like I don't have, I shouldn't. And I think that's the thing when you can build a team of people who protect that locker room with everything they got, that's when I think, you know, you got it right. And it's cool to see those moments in time sometimes where you've invested in people or you've mentored people and you start to see it click a little bit where they start to handle business for you. Yeah, no, I, I love it. And on the basketball court, a lot of times with the kids, especially the ones who, who are bought in, we're asking them in the real in game time, like, what do you see on the court right now? And they're like, no, coach, we need to run Kentucky right now, right? And Or we need help on the backside over here. Like, they're coaching themselves, and I'm just there, right? I'm just like, I don't do a whole lot, except I'm like, you guys need to communicate. You need to talk, right? One of my favorites, and it's adjacent, but it's a Pat Dye quote that, like, we're going to make practice hell on earth so the game seems easy. Yep. And if you do those things when nobody's looking, like everybody, it's fascinating. Like both of us get it. And sorry for going off script. I didn't read it. So I can't There's be no accused of it. <laughs> but like, it's fascinating when you get to the public setting of keynotes and podcasts and all these things. And people go, I want your job one day. I'm like, you want all of it? Right? Like you want, want everything? So, so it's like, it's so easy for us to look at a starting quarterback or an opening day pitcher or a point guard or anybody else and go CEO and go, man, I want that job. You don't go, just get the parts of the job that are when the lights are on and it's the fun part. You get the rest of the job when nobody's looking and there's zero credit and you got to figure out, are you here for the glory and, or are you here for the mission, right? Like it's the old, some people know what they want to be called and some people know what they want to get done. And I don't think that's a Venn diagram. I think those are two different circles and when you find the people that are here for a title or they're here for the glory or the credit, get them the hell out because they will kill your locker room faster than anything. And it's also, I think, a truth that like one person cannot make any organization a success, but one single cancer can kill it. 
And I think you have to be super zealous about it. And I made some decisions early on. Like, I, I mean, I, my dad told me a long time ago, if the Tampa Bay Times and now the, the St. Pete Times wasn't saying bad stuff about me, I wasn't doing anything constructive. And I've proven that true. But like, I took heat for turnover. I'll never apologize for it. We were going to have zero cancers in the locker room. And I think if you're willing to go down with your playbook, you'll start to find you, you won't actually go down. It's the people that are scared to go down, right? The scared to take the punch that, that end up taking the punches just out of like having done nothing con constructive, maybe. Yeah. And in high school, we call them student athletes, which sometimes the students forget that they are also a student first <laughs> and then they're an athlete, right? Jeremy, before we jump to the audience Q&A, so on the roadshow stop, there were, you know, kind of before there were, I think I heard this, I, it was like zero agencies have collaborated on cybersecurity since 1845, right? Can you maybe talk about the data sharing agreements with the 30 plus state agencies and the team spirit that you've been able to kind of communicate throughout the state? In Jeremy's defense, we have not proven that the Pony Express and the, the carrier pigeons didn't like send indicators to compromise. <laughs> that one just came out ad lib. I was like, well, we didn't have computers back then, but that's when we came to state. Yeah. So it's been really exciting. So I've been at the digital service for a little bit more than a year. And when I got there, no agencies had shared security information before. We were just, it was on the path, right? Uh, but Jamie brought me in to really build this kind of security, mesh architecture, intelligence sharing, threat sharing. And at the end of the day, the governor and the legislature doesn't want to go to 30 something odd agencies and say, hey, are we safe? Are we safe? Are we safe? Are we safe? You know, the bad guys don't care which agency they're in. They honestly don't even care if they're at state government or local government. They want to do damage. They want to make money. They want to make a name for themselves. But we're in a spot where we couldn't, you know, you could get one agency could get pwned. They could have, they could have an issue. They could have a security incident. And you could take that, more than likely, you could take that very same exploit that was done and go to the next agency and hit them four hours later. And you could go to the next agency and hit them 10 hours later. So we're really looking to build up and we've started building this ecosystem where, okay, we have monitoring and intelligence sharing and security sharing and a security posture across the entire enterprise. So for the first time you've taken, and Jamie hit on this, you know, imagine coming to a hundred plus billion dollar organization and all of the silos are not tied to each other that, you know, some of them are doing pretty good jobs, honestly, in their own silo. Some of them aren't, some of them are underfunded. We have the haves and the have nots where, you know, you have some agencies where just security wasn't a, cybersecurity wasn't a focus. So it was a golden opportunity to kind of build it from the ground up and create a centralized view of what cyber, the cybersecurity posture was and start kind of going at this as a team. You know, you can't have 37 different CIOs rowing in 37 different directions and given 37 different reports in 37 different ways on what their security posture are, and then fixing it in 37 different ways. Like there are adversaries work at asymmetrical speeds that if we're not all working together, we just can't address that. And I don't want to give the impression that we've got it all figured out and, and that we're that we still, you know, I think our posture has been, hey, we're gonna, we're just gonna turn the lights on. We didn't even know how many endpoints we had uh, across any of those agencies. And we're doing that point now. Okay, we're at least starting to illuminate the problem and close out the, you know, start, we're at a spot now where we're, we understand the problem and we're addressing it, you know, from the most critical down, but it's, it's a really exciting challenge. Can I have him brag on something real quick before I want to brag on, on, on Jeremy and Warren and Leo and the entire security team, but we had a state first and the same way I did with our team when I showed up, right? Like there's, 
at the time, 100 and something employees who are like, great, we got some politician appointed to run the digital service. And so I told him, I said, look, I expect to find bad news and skeletons everywhere. You have an immunity period, right? Like bring me all the skeletons. There will be no punishment for a skeleton. Once the immunity period ends, don't let me find a skeleton. Take advantage it, of like, it. Like, yeah. That's a zero tolerance <laughs> policy. I find you hide a skeleton, that's being a cancer in the locker room, right? That's putting self-preservation above the team. And so we, we started with us. And we've done the same thing with the agencies, right? To say, like, guys, we're going to turn the lights on. We're going to give you opportunities. you got to lean in. But unfortunately, that first couple of seasons, you had some agency CIOs doing some really questionable things and some things that are best at best defined as self-preservation. They got hit. They don't want to report. They got hit. Their strategy is say nothing, hope nobody finds out, hope my secretary who doesn't know what endpoint detection and response is, or hope my executive director who has no idea what capabilities are out there, hide information from the CEO of the organization and hope I never get caught, right? Um, so we had a couple choices. We could come in with the heavy hand and say, hey, the governor's done that. Same agency CIOs, by the way, in some situations. And it's like any bell curve. You have those that are leaning in, leading the way, and fantastic. But you find this in this space, when we come back to it's about people, the same agency CIO who says, I'm not going to agree to participate in cybersecurity until there's a data sharing agreement, has domain trust with like 15 agencies and admin, pass, admin accounts with no passwords. And it's like, you're worried about a contract on the front end, not worried about the CIV on the back end, right? And so... Again, like coming back to the immunity to go, hey, guys, like, let's lean in. Let's lean in. Super proud of the entire ecosystem because I think we had a first in state history a few months ago. And Jeremy and Warren and Leo had the team from the undefined agency for public purposes, obviously. But talk a little bit about the first time in state history that a cybersecurity operations center without receiving IOCs from MSISAC or any other ISAC, without receiving IOCs from the FBI or through FDLE, but 100% a CIO showing up or a security team showing up, and instead of trying to hide the skeleton, coming in saying, hey, I got hit, and I got hit hard. Fortunately, we're a sophisticated agency and we could respond a little bit, but if I got hit hard, I wonder if anybody else is dealing with this, and it's probably one of the things that I'm most proud of from an output perspective at the state level way easier to get buy-in from the locals than state agencies. And we're seeing that quantitatively by the day with applications that are coming in. But talk a little bit about that story because the life cycle of an agency technical leader coming into the CSOC to say, I got hit rather than I'm going to hide, and what that yielded. Because for the first time in state history, three other unexecuted exploits across three agencies remediated before boom because of what the team has been doing. And I think that's where the culture inside the locker room emanates out. Um, and you just have to get people to trust you over time. But I think that's something that, that Jeremy should talk a little bit about because it just, it's, uh, if you can appreciate how far we've come in two and a half years and to imagine a self-reporting agency coming in saying, I got hit and I want to help the other agencies, radical transformation from the self-preservation, the hiding of evidence, the burning down of servers, hoping we never find it, we eventually find it an incident response, guys, like it's going to come out, you know. So talk about how you've kind of expanded that culture, because I think that's a really cool thing that we touch on the roadshow, more instructive than carrier pigeons doing <laughs> IOC carrying in 1845. Yeah, yeah. So, so it was a great kind of great case study, I think, for our state. So again, a year ago, you know, none of these agencies were siloed. And our CSOC, our Cybersecurity Operations Center, is 
the clearinghouse for reporting, for instant reporting and threat intelligence. So we had an instant at an agency, one or more mature agencies. And again, if anyone's ever been involved in a security incident, the, it, you know, you get, oh, I don't want anyone to find out, protect my job, shame, burn it down, don't report, maybe it's not something, you know, just try to minimize, which is the worst thing you could possibly do because, first of all, you may not even clear the bad actors. You know, you try to ignore it or minimize it pretend it's not there. You know, the head in the sand approach to security doesn't work. So we had an agency who stepped up right away. Hey, we have an incident. We're handling it. Can you engage at the digital service level to kind of give overwatch on this? And it was great because we were able to take those IOCs, those indicators of compromise, get them out to the ecosystem and also do some with this enterprise security apparatus that we're building, do some searches on our team's level, pass them out and say, oh, look, this, we see there's an active incident going on. We see that there's a couple other exploitations that may be possible. Let's seal those up. Let's block them at, you know, patch here where we need to, block here where we need to. And for the first time in, in our state, we went from a system where, okay, that what would have happened a year ago or a couple of years ago before we had our the support that we've had from our governor and the legislature, we would have had four or five agencies exploited and much more damage. And again, so the agency that helped out, they contained this pretty quickly and were able to minimize the damage. If they hadn't have reported this, the other agencies that were there were not at this maturity level and it would have been far worse. So you've got a little bit of smoke, you know, smelling a little bit of smoke in one area, turn it off. Okay, we're good. We've got it contained. If we didn't have that collaborative mindset, that information sharing mindset across our agencies, you would have had probably a, a three or five alarm fire across the state enterprise and even better, you know, and that was a huge win right there. What was even cooler from that is you then had that state agency do a, Hey, let's do a a lessons learned. We hold monthly security leaders meetings across our agencies and CIO meetings across the agencies. So they came in and said, Hey, open kimono. Here's what it's like to go through this. Here's what it's like to partner with our team. And you just would have never had that. That's what's so cool. It's like you would have never had that before, I think, the culture that we're working to develop. And it's not us. It's the team that we're building, the team that we're developing, uh, the team that we're growing. By the way, we've got a lot of hiring. So let me just put the word out if you're interested in joining the state of Florida. We're putting the word out. We're doing some, we're picking up some talent where we can. But to take that kind of mindset and see the collaboration that's going versus the, hey, you know, head in the sand mentality, honestly, we averted a lot of damage. And that, that's a big testament, I think, to the collaboration culture that we're building. No, Joe, like it, it is, you know, it, I think some of these folks don't, every buying decision in the history of civilization, hope or fear, right? We're leaning in heavy on hope, right? Offer them, offer the ecosystem, whoever it may be, hope. But like, you know, one of the things we've said is don't put me in a position, you put me in a position of having to brief the governor or brief the legislature. And the answer is, hey, they haven't historically had the resources they bought and they did the right thing. I'll take every bullet for you. You hide the ball and don't show up. I'm pulling the trigger. Right. And getting to a place where you can establish kind of the meritocracy of an agency leader coming in and saying, I got hit. I think is one of the most fundamental transformations if you're trying to roll out enterprise security because from you know 1845 to before was like, hey, like just hide. Hope my CEO doesn't find out. Hope my secretary doesn't know what they're talking about. Hope they don't know what questions to ask. And I think at the end of the day, like that's where our team has had kind of a unique time and opportunity is some of the relationships we have that maybe transcend out of the little bubble 
and maybe have some relationships with agency heads and different folks to be able to go, hey, you know, you got some challenges over there. We'd like to help. Let us know how we can help. But ultimately, and I'd close here because I know you, you want to get to Q&A, getting to a place where we can scorecard at an executive level so secretaries and executive directors don't have to understand security. Like our job is to be able to go into the governor's office or to go into any other executive's office and say, here's how you're performing, and here's how it looks on a trend line, and here's how it looks across the enterprise. You'll get the activity you need. And we're just breaching that door now, which is kind of exciting. But like everything, we eat our own dog food, so we scorecarded ourselves first, and the team's had some fun with that. But we're just beginning to, to start those monthly or quarterlies with agency heads to say, hey, you know, if you want to have a briefing and you want to understand where you are, this is the scorecard. But it's also something we've transparently told the, the, the CIOs is like, hey, guys, we're scorecarding ourselves. The governor's scorecarding us. You should be expected to be scorecarded. No secrets. Here's the test. Here's what's going to be on the scorecard. The only question is what your numbers and what your trend is going to look like. We're here to make sure it's a green trend, not a red trend. Yeah, no, I love that. We're going to jump to audience Q&A. The one thing I will say, and Jeremy, I'm going to say, I got to send this to you. It's on Tech Tables Plus, but the interview with Nancy and Mandy, they talk about a ransomware attack where they go out to West Texas and the sheriff's response to containing the cyber incident, he thought was pulling out his gun and shooting the box is what would happen. And so Mandy and Nancy are like, Look, West Texas, everybody talks about Florida, man, but West Texas is a different panhandle. Like, Sentinel, I believe it. I don't know if Sentinel One handles cybersecurity response like that, but I don't have guns in West Texas. But yeah, no, that's so we're going to jump to audience QA. We've got a mic. Uh, so I'm Jason Morano, work for Quest Software. One of the challenges, not just at state and local government, but even in talking to customers in corporate America, is a retirement crisis and Microsoft's gap, you might call it, between retiring technical certifications around Active Directory and their push for Azure certifications. And one of the things that I've been hearing a lot and even been kind of talking to our customers about is where, how are you planning to fill that gap between possibly some of the MCSEs, the people that hold that legacy Active Directory knowledge they're exiting the industry in the next, say, five to 10 years. Then you have the crop of people that are trained on the latest, and yet the state or many businesses don't see themselves fully adopted or slowly adopting. Maybe some of those moat dragons that you spoke about are those MCSEs, those people that are traditional AD security people saw the existential threat of moving to the cloud as a problem because they didn't understand it themselves. Could you guys possibly relate to that question? And We can relate to it. Why don't you answer it first? Sure. So, we can uh, definitely relate. We could probably have a whole nother podcast on that question alone. So from a technology standpoint, you know, leaning in, embracing modern technology and cybersecurity paradigms, things like, like zero trust and cloud first, and it's a challenge, right? We have a couple of funny cybersecurity sayings. You know, it, for one of ours that we came up is it, you know, it's not the zero day that worries me. It's the zero day from 10 years ago. You know, so how do we brace against that? And how do we prepare for that? And how do we catch up on things like technical debt from, you know, when it was a different culture and different administrations and we didn't have this lean in, forward leaning buy-in like we do in an environment today. So technically we're working to get there. From the people side of that, it takes deliberate 
work. And you touched on several of the concerns. So, you know, succession planning and building a pipeline of talent from folks who are coming out of school or maybe haven't gone to the traditional, you know, four-year route or cert route. So training the folks you have now and making sure that they're staying current and also going after the future of the workforce. And that's something we're looking at very heavily with fellowships. It, it, it's, it takes deliberate work and it's hard to, hard to do overnight. You know, I would say the state's workforce is more like a aircraft carrier than a fast attack boat. So you can't take everyone from uh, technology 25 years ago to where it's going tomorrow. And that's why we do a lot, we spend a lot of time on it. And I'm probably still in all the good talking points because my boss let me say go first, but we've got a, a collaboration lab, a collab where we bring in industry partners to bring in the latest technologies. And we're focusing very heavily on training across the board. So whether it's traditional training, on the job training, partnering, we're doing everything we can on it. Yeah, I think Jeremy gave a really good answer. I wanted him to go first for a couple of reasons. You've heard too much of my voice already. But a few things I'd say, and you'll pick up on a philosophy pretty quickly, but free enterprise, truly free enterprise markets for all of civilization are undefeated. I don't mean manipulated, and I mean markets. And they're undefeated because incentive structures are undefeated, right? So if we extrapolate back and we say, why am I getting this behavior? And I could tell you a story on a different podcast, how a $250 per doc spiff in our company cost us $60,250 because it was a really perverse incentive. Incentives always win. And so if we think that the construct of government can solve the things that Jeremy was talking about, we're just flawed. I would bet you a body part and not just a pinky toe that if you went to agency heads or the governor's office or people in charge and said, what does ISM mean? Or who does the ISM report to? Or what is the structure in your agency? Do you have somebody that's actually responsible for cybersecurity? They have no idea. They may say, hey, I'm supposed to have an ISM because statute says I'm supposed to have an information security manager. They're supposed to report to the agency head, which means they don't report to the CIO, which means that might have a kind of perverse structure if it's auditor versus like head of security, right? So if Jeremy was the IG living in my office, just questioning everything I did, that's a different relationship than being my defensive coordinator, making sure the Russians and the Chinese don't put points on the board. So how do you in policy then go incentivize agency heads to have a CISO? So that's something we're hoping to do this year, right? To go get an FTE on paper for each agency head so that they have somebody that's dedicated to cybersecurity and that they also have the information security manager to make sure they're getting true and accurate information. But let's not like mash those two roles together. So the only other thing I'd add to keep the answer brief, because I mean, you could do like a day on the topic, 80 some odd percent of the workforce about to go. You know, one of the jokes I make sometimes is that Active Directory is the new COBOL. Like, there's going to be people that are 75 years old that are doing that instead of mainframes. When we finally retire mainframes, Active Directory will be the new thing. Getting government, and I think Chandra's going to laugh at me, to understand fences versus fenceless in an architectural design because there are limitations to fenced products. And ubiquitous cloud doesn't have fences done right. And so you've got a fundamental, like the Ford Pass is getting introduced to a game and you got people who go, I'm a running back or an option quarterback. If I embrace cloud, I'm going to be out of work. And we've had agency CIOs say it, right? Like, and one of the messages we've given to them is you, I promise you embracing cloud will not lose you your job. What I can promise you is trying to resist the OPEX SaaS cloud world will cost you your job. 
So we're here to help you train. We're here to help you upskill. But if you think that you can maintain an offense that doesn't throw the ball forward down the field and you're going to maintain on the field or coaching that game, it's a matter of time before you figure that out. And so we try really hard with our team to, to get them to understand that there's a massive difference, a fundamental difference between being unfireable and invaluable. Unfireable is the person that has the spreadsheet that nobody else knows how to work. Unfireable is the person who can operate a mainframe that shouldn't still be in existence and isn't doing anything to migrate off of it or trying to. Unfireable are the people who say, stay out of my office because I can't teach anybody how to do this. If I teach you how to do this, I'm less valuable. Turns out the people who can coach you up, train you up and make yourself, like I am trying, this is no secret. I am trying to make myself irrelevant at the digital service, actively. Like I tell the team all the time, I should be allowed to die in a plane crash and nobody care but my family. The place should be just fine. Chandra would care. It, but friends, at, right, but like, I mean, I, I, and I've given the example, like our board wouldn't let myself and our two co-founders on the same flight. We had to mature as a company to where it was okay for the three of us to be on the same plane. And if that plane went down, everything would be okay, relatively speaking. And I think there's just this mindset in government that like, it's just a fundamentally different place and you can't really make it the private sector. And I think that's been one of the biggest revelations and evolutions for me is that when I came in, I said something so stupid and this room will get it. This is one of the dumbest things I said in my tenure. And it was born out of a situation where our former VP of sales is at a company that does a lot of business with the state. And I was getting a point. I said, hey, Nalia, if I can be helpful, if I can introduce you to folks, let me know. He said, well, I'm on the commercial side, not the sled side. And I was like, what's a sled? And he goes, he starts explaining it. And I go, yeah, that's fine. But like, you know, if it helps you, tell your sled guy, give me a call. He's like, nope, can't do that. And he finally gets down to telling me he'll get in trouble at the company if they cross the Rubicon. That is sled versus commercial. And so I set out like a, an idiot on this one. And I said, we're going to change the way that government does business so much so that your commercial team and your sled team don't have to be different. I have now realized how asinine that is because <laughs> being dropped into government is like, and, and I'm not Ethiopian or Ugandan or Ecuadorian, but like dropped into you know, any one of the great partners that Lauren works with and dropped into their world without the understanding of how the currency works and what the culture is and what gets you arrested versus what lets you survive. And like you have to do business in that ecosystem. And so educating people and being willing to say, here's our like secret sauce. It's not a secret, right? Just focus on the user, know who your customer is and make them have a delightful experience over and over again. Works no matter what any of you do. And I think just understanding that government is so foreign that there are some things in it because government doesn't have to retire quota. Do government doesn't have to worry about rifts. Government doesn't have to work about, worry about earnings and quarterlies and all these different things. Government has to worry about if you really boil it down to the employee, don't get fired. And historically, don't get fired means take no risk. Yeah. And if you take no risk, you do nothing. And then the rest of us look around and go, how come we can't have a simple API call that says sex offender, foster child, not happening? And I get heated about it because it's so frustrating. But I think like if you boil down to the incentive structures, we start to figure out how to like translate and transact in a foreign ecosystem to make the incentive structures work for us. And so I'll culminate it by saying, I was asked at one of these, like, what's my, what do I want my legacy to be? Which I hate as a question. Omar and some good friends, like I look down at two o'clock on the floor if I'm ever getting a compliment because I'm really wildly uncomfortable with it. 
And so this question just bothered me. You were there. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. Like if, I had an answer too. Yeah. yeah so Joe and I looked at each other at this dinner and we're like, this, I, I don't like this. And, you know, some people are going around the table and they're like, I want it to be this. I want it to be this. And I asked a couple people, I said, who's your favorite sports team? And unless it's the Green Bay Packers or somebody like that, it's a pretty tough question to answer. Who was their first head coach? Right? Like you ask somebody, I couldn't, I can tell you who Pat Dye is. I can tell you who Coach Heisman is. I can tell you who Tommy Tuberville is. I could, t- I go down the list of Auburn coaches. You put a gun to my head, I'd tell you to pull the trigger because I don't know who the first head coach was at Auburn. Our goal as a team, because I've set it out for all of us, but my goal is to be able to walk in the digital service in three, four, five, ten years, and somebody go, who's that weird dude walking the halls? Right? Because we built an organization that delivered value about the name on the front of the jersey, not the back. And I think if you do that, you start to at least chip away. But man, the, the moat dragons are fierce and the fire is hot and you just have to not give up. And I think that's the one thing I would say about navigating bureaucracy is be more stubborn than them. And then don't be scared to get fired. Like I, I set out at the beginning, I want to make myself irrelevant. I want to be able to go back to the private sector. It's what I'm wired to do. It's what I love to do. I'm making a lot of enemies in government. But judge me by my enemies. They're telling the truth. And if I don't have any, I'm not doing anything. And so I need to make sure I have the right friends and the right enemies. And there are people that will fight and war against progress. And if I could give anything to what we do on a daily basis, it's don't give up. Know what you're there to accomplish and just refuse to take no. And if you do that over and over again, you start to look back and go, man, we've actually, <laughs> we got to yes whether they wanted us to or not. And that's the biggest thing I would say is just be freaking stubborn, man. Yeah, no, I love that. I also, I think four months in, into the public sector, I, I didn't know what SLED was. People kept you and they're like, SLED, this is our SLED team. Like, Then they break up SLED and ED. And I'm like, yeah. like, like, which half of the SLED are you on? Because there's an ED component right. and there's a... Like, is FED in there or not? Yeah, it, like, it varies, right? Yeah, this is real talk. I was at, no, I was at NASTD and this is literally what happened to me. I was sitting at a table with some folks from Texas and they were telling me like, sled ed federal and then they asked me what territory are you in and like i don't want to be mean i don't have a territory like i'm an entrepreneur like uh, it's so funny to me because i'm like this isn't like a transaction and then yeah the whole thing about being summer we had to be pretty summer we had a lot of people tell us we're gonna throw these live podcast events that's a dumb idea why they're like well no one's done it well we should do it and they're like no so we don't give up yeah we don't give up we love it let's take one more question only because jamie's gonna come back on with morgan wright We've already been going 70 minutes now. So let's just say, if there's one more, we'll take it. Andrea wants to take it. Yep. Andrea Sherwood in cybersecurity at NBC Universal, but came for from 15 years at Lockheed Martin. So just thinking from, it was really surprising to me to hear, you know, the innovation and how really from a regulatory compliance, it could be very stifling from that perspective, just because people might focus too much on that. So I'm just kind of curious how that's kind of kept you all motivated and going. Just thinking from, you know, my days at Lockheed, but just love the culture there where it was, yep, we've got to go check these boxes, but we've got to look at the threat and we've got to understand really what we're focused on and what we need to do to protect. So just kind of would love to hear how you balance that. To kind of build on what we were just talking about, Jamie comes, you know, founder mentality, startup background. I come from the commercial side on big tech-ish, I would say, and some startup organizations inside of that big tech environment. And if you kind of go back to the previous question, I think there's a lot of overlap. You know, if you look at unfireable versus invaluable, 
I feel like our job, my job at the end of the day is to take technical risk, cybersecurity risk, business risk off the table. And nothing is more risky than that unfireable person to, you know, that is the biggest risk of everything. So getting that, that innovative mindset and bringing inside, and this is the case in, it's not just a government problem, right? I mean, you see this in the commercial realm and in the education realm at the local government, state government, federal government, you have plenty of folks. It may be a little worse in the government section of this unfireable mentality, but transitioning, I think that mindset into a, okay, how do you become invaluable? You know, nothing is more invaluable than someone who is looking to push the limits and take a little bit of risk in addressing problems versus I don't want to take any risk. So I, the, that's the biggest thing is hey, t- take risks, calculated risk where it makes sense technically and avoid that. You know, I've known this. I, I don't want to see the 20 to 30 year old technology and process change because I'm the only one who knows that. That is honestly the biggest risk in our world. So, so just pushing past that mindset, pushing through that mindset and getting as many people as you can in the boat with you to embrace innovation is the only way to go about it. So, so I, this is another one that I think you could do a day on, right? Because one of the things, going back to your first question, Joe, about like a startup from within government, I'm not all that bright. I just plagiarize what works, right? So, and pay attention to what didn't, more importantly. The best leaders to learn from are the worst leaders I've worked with. And that sounds kind of catty or petty, but it's really easy to pay attention when you're accepting the trophy. Like you learn a lot more from really bad leadership. And so there's a few things I would say. One, when I was thinking about kind of the startup from within government early on, I kind of put it on a matrix. And it's like, you know, the bureaucracy of either government or big corporation, because there are some absolute parallels, right? And then resources, right? So if you have a little X, Y access of size of bureaucracy and resources. The bigger the bureaucracy, typically, the more resources you have, right? So big business, big rules and regulations, but also big resources. Startup, no rules, no regulations, no resources. Startup within government, all the rules, <laughs> no, <laughs> right? Like you're, right? You're like, all the rules. And when you start like boiling down, you find out like, you know, one, one thing to, to go to tie one bow, I'll say in this space is in, in a role like this, where I'm quasi CEO, quasi department head, right? Like I don't work for myself, but you also have some level of like, build this thing as a head coach kind of you can only go as far as your executive backing. So I don't care if it's Lockheed or the state of Florida, if you're in this room, the executive backing is the only thing that matters to get you that far. Two, I'm a, one of my theories, and somebody smarter than me will put this into like academic whatever, but every organization has two strands to their DNA. And it's the mission they're trying to solve, and it's their character at their core. And you have a certain period of time to set that culture when you're starting a company or when you're taking over something. And so you said something earlier, and I was listening to Simon Sinek the other day, who I love, and he had somebody on that was talking about the difference between excellenceism and perfectionism. And I thought that was a really good way to articulate it, because one of the things that if you make the mistake of looking at the digital service from the outside or seeing us off the field, I think you could fall prey to the common assumption that we just like to have fun and we're unfiltered. We take our work really freaking seriously. And the thing that I would stress from a culture inside is like the amount of fun we can have is directly correlated to the excellence we produce. And so I think if you create a culture that says we have some zero tolerance on liars and frauds, we try and avoid insecurity, and we try really hard 
to reward anticipation and reliability, right? Like it's easy to say, these are the people I want. But if we really boil down the traits we want, it's people who anticipate and people who are reliable. Because if they see what's coming and they're reliable, problems get solved before it, it gets to us. On the flip side, if they're insecure, that starts to show symptoms that are really gross that get real close to liar and fraud. And so know what the two strands of the organization are. I think it's why you see some of these big companies struggle to become something new, right? When ingrained in their DNA was this is how we solve or this is what we're trying to solve. And so a culture that refuses to quit a culture that re refuses to accept the status quo. It's why I laugh. Like people come to us and they sell to us and like, well, we did this in five other states. It's like, cool. <laughs> we're kind of bummed we're not first, number one. Number two, like you say it, NASD or in it, NASIO, like you've seen one state, you've seen one state. Why are you talking to me about what worked over there? They don't have the same chessboard we have. So like understand our problems, understand our chessboard, and now we can get to like doing real business more quickly. But I would just encourage you that it's, it's, it, there are some similarities in bureaucracy, no matter what flavor, public or private. It's just that the tool sets change. It's that the ways to get to yes change. And then I think I would say like, cause I've probably given off like a little bit of a wartime CEO vibe, which is probably feature not bug, but uh, know what stage you're in. So uh, one of the jokes I make is that if I'm ever the CEO of a publicly traded company, short the hell out of it. <laughs> I will get bored. I will tinker. Something will be working just fine. And I'm like, that's, <laughs> it's old. Know what stage you're at in the team, right? Because I know I'm not wired to be in a fortune 100 company. I'll go crazy. I know where I'm supposed to be. At least I believe it. And I think that starts with another part of our culture that says like, identify what you suck at and don't do it. Don't go anywhere close to it. And on company time, don't try and become good at it. You will never be good at what you suck at invest in what you're good at and figure out how to love doing what you're good at. And that's not to say you shouldn't want to get better at things. It's to say that I'm doing a disservice to the company if I try and put Jeremy in a position to do something different and to go full circle, Joe. Like nobody said, how do we make Shaq a point guard? Nobody thought, like, how do I make Tom Brady a left tackle? He's not, like nobody said, let's spend money figuring out how to make Randy Johnson a center fielder. Like we said, these guys are elite at what they do, have them do that. And then the last charge I'll give you, and this is something I'm going to say one more because I'm on a soapbox about this one, Joe. I'm so at war and sick and tired of managing people being the definition of success, public and private. Like this notion that people, I had to fight the legislature, I had to fight different people to pay my coordinators more money than I make. And I think that's crazy. Like you tell me how many managers made more money than Randy Johnson. How many coaches made more money than Tom Brady? How many, you know, coaches made more money than Shaq? They don't. We invest in players. And government just fundamentally screws this up over and over that says if you want more money and a better retirement and a thing, you have to be more senior to somebody that does the work, which means you have to make more money because it's a problem if you don't make the work. Guess what? There's a few people on my org chart that make a lot more money than me. And my choice was I can either pay them more money and get the talent I need, or I can have like the lightning rod story of trying to give my, my money's later. Like we win, everybody will do just fine. We're not martyrs here. We're on a mission. We'll be fine later. But like for right now, invest in the talent it takes. And I think that's one of the mentalities that like Elon, not to cliche it, but he was talking to what that we were talking about in our E-team meeting shows up. This is a total ramble. I'm sorry, Joe, but he shows up in an engineering meeting. <laughs> 
And he says, how many of you have pushed code in what? Like, it was some, like, extreme number of months. Like literally engineers at Twitter. Yeah, it was like some, it was six months or something. How many of purely an audience of engineers, hundreds of engineers at Twitter, how many of you have pushed code to production in the last six months? And like two hands goes up. So what had happened was this toxic culture of incentivizing management meant that the best engineers were managing engineers who were managing engineers who were managing engineers who were managing kids right out of Stanford who were actually writing Twitter. Nuts. But somehow we think that like the people who are on the field making the actual product should make less than the manager. I'm replaceable easily. Who's not replaceable is the person who's making product happen. And I think like that's something that that y'all in the private sector are a little bit ahead of us, but it's a curse there too. And I think to quote a guy that I'm a big fan of, David Sachs, like the surplus elites are getting rooted out left and right. You look at these riffs, it's not product. You look at the riffs, it's the VP of something that nobody can point to and say they made the product better, they invested in this, they innovated that. It's the, we're here to manage. And that's the courage I would give to the managers is like own the space of like being a positive addition to product and you're not there, but as, a, as at a corporate or board level, like invest in the people who are making product happen because there's a whole lot of surplus elite running around and we as leaders just have to be willing to say like, hey, I'm okay with you getting the credit or the money. That's fine. We win, I lose. Yeah, and that was fantastic. And with that, we're going to wrap up this session. A big shout out to Jeremy and Jamie for coming on. And thank you for coming on the podcast. Dude, thanks for having thank us. Too. Happy game day. That's right. And then you guys are going to sign this ball too. Yeah. Yeah.